This podcast is brought to you by Gentle Reader, a reading app for people who read. Go to gentlereader.com or search Gentle Reader on the Apple App Store. Welcome to the Browser Podcast, Writers We Admire, in which we talk to writers we admire. I'm Robert Cottrell, editor of the Browser, and I'm sitting today with Professor Laura Kipnis, whose articles on feminism, the culture wars, particularly Title IX issues at universities, have really been making quite some waves. So, Professor Kipnis, thank you for making the time. Please call me Laura. Laura, can you start by giving us a bit of background about how Title IX has become such a central issue and how you, you yourself have been caught up in it? You know, I got caught up in this stuff, first of all, in terms of campus politics and campus sexual politics, when I was brought up on Title IX complaints for writing an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and I didn't know what Title IX was, and it turns out it's this thing coming down from the federal government and the Department of Education in the United States to prevent sexual misconduct on campus. It started out as something to ensure gender equity and then it started covering sexual misconduct and then, you know, it branched out as bureaucracies tend to do to include all sorts of behaviors like such that I could get brought up on Title IX complaints for, for and, and, and undergo this sort of investigation and hearing for, for writing an essay. So there are two sets of things going on, I think. Well, there's the campus situation, and the politics of that and campus feminism, I mean, I've raised questions myself as a feminist as to whether this is a progressive movement and whether this is the left or this is a kind of feminist conservatism. I mean, I've called it, uh, I think, patriarchal feminism. So there's that set of issues and all of these debates about rape culture, et cetera, on, on campus, and I have some problems with that term. Then, more recently, the Me Too movement spurred in the U.S. by the revelations about Harvey Weinstein and sexual harassment in the workplace. And so I wrote this piece in the New York Review of Books about that. So there are these different sorts of issues. And then there is the kind of accusatory mania, which I think these two like venues or sites share. So there's this propensity and, and like revelry around accusation, mostly against men by women, although I, as I've investigated this stuff because I started learning a lot about the campus situation, I think queer people are getting caught up in this, women are getting accused of stuff more and more, so it's very indiscriminate, but in the main it's women accusing men of various kinds of sexual misconduct from offensive jokes or awkward come-ons to, you know, full-on rape. So there's such a range of stuff, and then there's a range of avenues by which justice is being pursued. So on campus, you've got this huge bureaucratic mechanism under the auspices of Title IX. In terms of Me Too, you've got investigative journalism and, and covering things, but you've also got these anonymous lists being posted online, like the shitty men in media list, where you had anonymous accusations about men, usually, this was in the media field, um, mostly men in positions of power, but also people who are like freelance writers. So a question becomes, if there's an anonymous accusation against a freelance writer for sexual scumminess, you know, what avenue of due process is there for something like that. So the accused man, and I've heard from a lot of accused men, 
who are caught up in this, you know, there's not really an avenue to for those people to address or redress anonymous complaints. The Title IX investigations that uh, are going on in the universities, is that part of the same phenomenon, the, the, the rebalancing of gender power, or is it something else? I actually think it's something else. I mean, the majority of uh, key, Title IX cases are peer-peer. You know, they're mostly women students complaining about men students and usually about drunken sex. I mean, you're not supposed to say that, but I wrote about that in Unwanted Advances, that, you know, even Title IX officers themselves will say the majority of Title IX complaints have to do with drunken hookups where somebody disputes whether it was consensual or not later on, and usually that person is a woman, although, you know, there's now like a variety of kinds of complaints that get prosecuted as, as Title IX. And, you know, some percentage of them are against professors who would have power over students, but a lot of those complaints have to do with things that are seen as sexual misconduct, like, say, making a joke in a classroom or being seen to be transphobic by using the wrong pronoun or, I mean, I've seen cases even like somebody thinks somebody else has made, like a professor has made the wrong eye contact. So there's a lot of sexual suspicion coloring this stuff. Those are, for the most part, not redressing power situations, although the way that power is being construed on campus, I think is kind of quite caricatured. That institutional power is is so, like, huge that, like, a professor can just take down a student's career at will, you know, that sort of thing. And I sort of think that it's more complicated than that. But I will say that when I read the Gretchen Carlson book, which is called, uh, I think it's called Be Fierce, uh, I was shocked by the revelations. Not even so much, she didn't talk about her own case at Fox, where she's the person known for having brought down Roger Ailes. You know, she wrote about all the women that had written to her about office and workplace harassment. And a lot of these are women without any sort of social power. I mean, women in the fast food industries, let's say. And the amount of unchecked harassment uh, and and demands for sex, you know, like quid pro quo kind of stuff that goes on, I think is probably so far beyond what we know that this really is a necessary movement. That's true, and at the same time, a lot of people are getting accused of stuff that is, you know, like five years ago was okay, like asking somebody else, somebody out at work or trying to kiss somebody at work. Five years ago, maybe that was okay, and now it's, you know that line has shifted very fast. Obviously there are some cases of gross injustice where an unsupported allegation costs a person their career. If the end product of this is a rebalancing of relations between men and women so that they are truly equal and truly able to self-determine in the workplace and in life, is that worth the few injustices we're having now. Obviously, it depends where you're sitting, you know, because I've been contacted by a lot of accused men who would not say that, you know, it's worth it, obviously. And I found myself using the analogy to somebody of the French Revolution, and I used that analogy in the in the New York Review piece about Gretchen Carlson, that um, you've got this class of people particularly initially the reports that were coming out of these big, you know, media guys who were just acting like they were feudal lords and like women's bodies were public property. 
that they had some sort of unfettered access to by virtue of their either social position or, you know, claiming, you know, thinking that sexual access to women came along with, you know, some sort of professional position. I mean, I'm sort of all for seeing that class of people tumble as a class. And at the same time, I understand that some of these accusations are probably very flimsy. So, you know, I don't think, you know, the word messy is, you know, the best word you can come up with. It's a messy process. And I suppose a lot of democratizing movements have been messy. Um, the various, you know, democratic revolutions, which I think women were mostly left out of. You know, men gained citizenship and, and rights uh, to a greater extent than women have had historically. And so I do think this is like a vast historical rebalancing since that has been one of the major forms of inequity, you know, is that like women, I used the kind of analogy being taxed. I mean, there's almost this unfair taxation on women in the workplace that they have to, you know, provide sexual services on demand in, you know, in some circumstances where your job depends on playing along, you know, with some guy who's using women to, to prop up his ego or insecurity or whatever. At the same time, I also wrote a book on what advances about a professor that I thought had been un, both unfairly accused and that the process had been so skewed, the Title IX processes that he went through had been so skewed and gender biased that there was nothing fair about this process. It was determined in, in advance. So like I had a discussion with somebody recently uh, by email who writes about uh, sexual accusation and, t and Title IX also. And she was more of a doubter about Me Too than I was. And I said, kind of the question you're bringing up, well, okay, like how many accusations equals like firm evidence? Because in my, you know, the case I wrote about two, I thought, you know, everybody else thought, well, if it's two, of course he's guilty. And I looked at the two and thought they were both flimsy. If you, you know, I said to her, maybe five, like maybe if there were five accusations. And she said, no, she had done research about a case where there were five accusations and, you know, they build on each other. They're kind of not exactly copycat, but one, you know, person is spurred by somebody else's account, et cetera, et cetera. So they snowball. So she was saying five isn't enough. I mean, I think we assume with Harvey Weinstein, since there were, there were hundreds, like that's enough. And certainly I think that we've had now the step change for men at the Harvey Weinstein level, haven't we? I mean, uh, no man in a smart suit in an executive suite is going to uh, you know, behave in a sexist or harassing manner, at least in my lifetime, I think. Well, you, one of the questions I raised in the New York Review piece is mm -hmm. like, to what extent is this compulsive behavior that's almost like tick-like? I mean, I, in reading some of the accounts of some of these accused men, mm -hmm. you know, the, the touching, the inappropriate stuff, the, 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 you know, cornering women and kissing them, I mean, how rational even at the time was that or how much was that asking to be censured. So I don't mm -hmm. know. So I mean if somebody is like acting out of some sort of unreflective compulsive need for affirmation, is that person able to get their behavior in line with the d new demands of the times? I I hope that's true. I don't know. But I don't think we've heard the end of the downfall stories. You know, now they're moving on they're moving to different industries. Like I just mm -hmm. read the other day about children's books authors. So it seems like different fields, you know, are having their, their Me Too moments. 
I think it's, it's said that when there is an accusation which is unsupported, then it's wrong to punish the person without due process. And yet, Title IX, as you describe it, involves a very exhaustive process, whether it's due or not. And yet, in the case that you described, it produced a result which was grossly unfair. They railroaded a professor out of a university. It's perhaps not a fair question to ask you, but nonetheless, you must have wondered at times during that process why it was that the the institution of the university, the establishment, the authorities of the university wanted this to happen. I'm used to students rebelling against the university authorities, but here it seems as though uh, you know, the two are working together. Well, you know, in the terms of Title IX, there's just this vast backstory that other people have written about that have to do with universities trying to avoid uh, being censured, uh, particularly under the Obama-era regulations, uh, where you could get put on this watch list or, or censure list and be investigated by the government. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars every time you're investigated, and also, you know, it's bad PR for the university, and I think there's also lawyers, you know, their, their general counsels get involved and want to avoid lawsuits, but the lawsuits now are coming from both sides. So it's, in terms of how these decisions get made to go forward, I, I mean, that's something that I don't have access to. You know, I can guess at some of the conversations, um, but like say even in my own case, I don't know who made the decision to go forward with the Title IX complaints against me. And, and I uh, went through two Title IX investigations because one, after this art, first article I wrote in the Chronicle, called Sexual Paranoia Strikes Academe, uh, fittingly enough. And then I went through a second investigation over the book because a group of faculty and students brought me up on Title IX complaints over the book and the university let that go forward. So as to who made that decision to green like that, I have no way of knowing. It's all behind closed doors. So a lot of this is, is sort of opaque. But there was one thing I just wanted to say about your question, because you used a sort of, um, there's no pronoun there, like it is thought that. It is assumed that there should be due process. You know, not everybody does assume that. I mean, you know, if you look at Twitter or feminist Twitter, mm -hmm. For, you know, take the Woody Allen case. I mean, there was a due process in the Woody Allen case where there was a decision not to prosecute and whoever made that decision found that there wasn't enough evidence to go forward. But you have also now this backlash where you have all these people saying that wasn't a due process and he, you know, nobody should watch his films and people like Judy Bloom who say they're not going to stop watching his films are censured on feminist Twitter, you know, not joining some, some boycott. So there's no agreement and there's no we in terms of who thinks there should and shouldn't be due process. Because there are a lot of people, and I'm going to say feminist Twitter, who think even if there is quote-unquote due process, if, it, if the verdict is not the one those people think it should be, that's not a due process. The thing that I think is distressing is I think there are, I've heard this from a lot of younger women writers, they're afraid to say controversial things because they're afraid of getting hated on, on Twitter. So I think that there's a level of self-censorship with younger women writers, or even worse than that, possibly, like, or maybe it's similar, a similar thing, a 
tendency to, to join the party line or not deviate from what's seen as a party line or a correct line. It's not, I'm calling it a party line. They would call it like being on the right side of history. So you see that term a lot. Well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Or if you deviate from this current thinking, you're on the wrong side of history without those people being aware of, you know, what history is or the fact that there actually are, I mean, like even young conservatives, because you hear now, oh, it's all generational. And then I want to say, but yeah, there are young conservatives. Not all generational rifts mean that the younger people are progressive. Because you, and you've been studying and writing about this cluster of issues for a long time, haven't you? I mean, you Quite, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I was reading articles about that you've written about harassment and about scapegoating going back 10, 12, 14 years. Well, I've always been interested in scandal, and I wrote a book mm-hmm. called How to Become yes. a Scandal. A, a lot of times people do get caught in scandals for, for sexual misconduct, but I was also writing about things like plagiarism, like the James Fry case. So, I was, you know, I'm very interested in people who fall, fall afoul of social norms. So writing about Peter Ludlow, the accused professor on my campus, because I'd also written a book, my previous book it was a collection of essays called Men, Notes from an Ongoing Investigation. So with the Peter Ludlow case, it was a kind of both somebody who got himself in an academic scandal, and I, it was sort of also my chance. I've always wanted to write an academic novel, so that I'm not really a novelist, so it was kind of a chance to look at academic culture from a slightly ironic perspective. Do you think that Title IX investigations and the climate of sensitivity around them is affecting what gets taught in the classroom? Oh, absolutely. It absolutely is. I mean, I've even heard from, um, I mean, Junisa Gerson, who's a Harvard law professor, has talked about, you know, her own uh, problems teaching stuff like rape law uh, at at Harvard Law. So, and I mean, there was a case in Chicago at the Chicago Art Institute about a guy who lost his career because some students thought stuff he was teaching about comic book history was racist because the history of these comic book, uh, these particular comic books is a, is a racist history. So people, I, everyone I know who's a professor, I think is either self-censoring to some degree or is worried about what happens if, if they don't. And I mean, I too am much more attuned to what could get misunderstood, what could land you on the front page of the New York Times because a student, you know, tweets something that you've said or takes out of context something that you said. So yeah, I think there's a lot of paranoia and and definitely revamping of how people teach or what they teach. Does it take a lot of moral strength to do what you're doing? I mean, do you ever think to yourself, well, why don't I just uh, relax, head down, leave it a couple of years? Well, I'd hate to call it moral strength, which seems sort of self-stroking. Uh, you know, I people have accused me of being a provocateur, or and I think of myself as maybe a contrarian. I think there was maybe something a little both enjoyable and maybe also compulsive about sort of pointing out like the elephant in the room. You know, I, I wrote this book uh, early on called Against Love about adultery and, and you know, I, I just thought I was saying kind of quite obvious things about the elephant in the room, uh, i.e. that monogamy wasn't necessarily sustainable over the 30 or 40 year, year marriage. So I think that, you know, the elephant in the room and in, in you know, in the current case, like this idea that on campus, uh, this rise in vulnerability is actually, or, or the sort of ways in which women particularly are being treated or regarding themselves as, as vulnerable is a 
way of inviting the institution or the you know bureaucrats on on campus to sort of step in in this paternalistic way and that it seems to me anti-feminist so you know to say things that actually seem sort of commonsensical i think you use that term or are obvious professor laura Gibness, you are a writer that the browser admires could i ask who are the writers that you admire it's a tough question and i was going to say there's i think there's a realm of stories that would be interesting to hear now from the people who've been accused of things but there's a real problem in writing those kinds of pieces because people have a few people have sent me their stabs at it and there's it's an impossible thing to get the tone right of you know there's you either sound defensive or you sound groveling i would love to read class of of literature about this moment that i think is almost an impossible story to tell do i understand correctly you'd like to hear what the men have to say. I very much would, because I think these are the people who are kind of caught up in history. I mean, I think this is an historical turning point. I mean, we'd like to think that, and, you know, who knows how history will look back at this moment. But, yeah, I mean, like, you'd like to hear what the French aristocrats thought, you know, as they were being led up to the guillotine, I guess. You know, what do the people who get caught up in history, the ones who are possibly, you could say, history's victims or have been treated badly by the trend of events. Yeah, well, what's it like for those people? Professor Laura Kipnis, writer we admire, thank you very much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to the browser. We recommend the best writing worth reading every day. Go to thebrowser.com.